Hello and welcome to Apt Untold, where we explore some of the stories behind the people of Apt. Today we have a special guest, Karen Harmon. Karen is Executive Director of Organizational Culture, and for good reason. She is an international development veteran and has been with the company since the early days of JTA. Karen has innumerable, exhilarating stories to share about her extensive experiences in the industry, and in our conversation today, we cover just a fraction of them. This episode is one of two versions. This is the extended version, where we hear some of Karen's experiences in international development and life. Some of these include the story behind how she was chased out of Rwanda by Hutu militia, her time as a spiritual midwife, and what it was like living in a village in PNG for four years. These stories are fascinating and you don't want to miss them. In the shorter version, the focus is on company culture, its underpinnings, and the importance of empathy in this line of work. Though don't worry, all of this is included in this episode. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Karen Harmon. Um, I'm Karen Harmon, um, General Manager for our Australian and Pacific programs and more recently appointed um, Executive Director for our organisational culture. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been uh, with APT or the company at JTA? In well, JTA. I, I started, uh, my first um, uh, appointment was in 2002. Uh, I worked for um, five years uh, as a um, program director and um, I looked after the technical side of the company at that time as uh, deputy CEO. And that was with with, JTA? No, that was with JTA JTA. International. And then um, in 2008, 2009, I um, had a bit of a career change and went down to live on a farm and um, quickly found that that wasn't really going to satisfy what I wanted to do you know, with that part of, at that time in my life. So um, I started doing a lot of consulting work with uh, JTA. And uh, then in 2013, I uh, came back into the fold. Hmm. So what, uh, well, how did you first get involved with uh, JTA? Well, it was an interesting story. I first met Jane when I was working on a project in the Philippines. Uh, it was a women's health program and it was a, what we called a multi-donor pro- program. Uh, and it was being implemented by this, uh, what was Ausaid at the time. Uh, it was being also supported through um, this um, ADB, the Asian Development Bank, uh, through the EU or the European Union. And um, the program was to improve um, safe motherhood um, and child survival across the entire Philippines. Uh, the OSAID funded part of the program was uh, looking at how we would strengthen um, the capacity of health workers working in women's health and they included um, uh, ranging from doctors, um, uh, obstetricians, um, first-line um, medical um, personnel right down to um, volunteer health workers. And I met Jane as um, I was the team leader of the program and Jane was the um, Uh, one of the members on the advisory um, panel uh, who uh, looked after uh, the quality of the program on behalf of um, the DEF, or the OSAID as it was then, uh, funding. And um, we got to know each other at that point in time and I came back to Australia at the conclusion of that program 
and stumbled into Jane in um, Canberra. And uh, we just caught up and she asked what I was doing. And I, at that time I was working um, as a CEO for a drug and alcohol program in Canberra and mentioned to her how um, frustrated I was with, uh, with the work that I was doing. And, you know, she offered commiserations and said, next time you're in, Cam uh, in Brisbane, you know, just pop in and we'll have a coffee. Well, I did pop in, had a coffee and walked out with the job. And that tends to be the way Jane operated at the time, which was great. But I was, I'm always very cautious about being invited for coffee these days. <laughs> you never know what job you're going to end up with. So can you uh, talk a little bit about um, what GTA was like? I'm sure many of the people... Listening to yeah, this, we were uh, very. Well, it was a very small company. In fact, when I joined, it wasn't called even called JTA. It was called APAC. So that was Asia Pacific um, um, Health Systems, APAC Health Systems. And it wasn't long after I joined, possibly about eight months, uh, when um, there was some wholesale changes in the in the organisation, and um, Jane became sole owner of the company, and it became uh, JTA International. So that was um, back in you know the very early 2000s. At that time, there were very, very small staff. Um, I think there were about seven of us. Um, and we quickly became a very cohesive family unit and uh, very much how we operated. And, and I think that's the genesis of the culture that we have now, that it was a very supportive, nurturing environment uh, with a group of people committed to the same um, value set and you know, had the same passion for the work that they were doing. And what would you say um, those values are specifically? I'm sure, I'm sure many are familiar with them, but I'd just like to hear. The values at that time? At that time, yes. Yeah. Well, they were, they were about you know, um, being excellent in everything that we did. It was about you know, being able to um, um, demonstrate not just your passion, but you know, the skill set that sits behind that to be able to enable those passions to, um, to drive change and to address issues of poverty in very real and meaningful ways in the work that we did. You know, we had values that ensured that, that we were mutually supportive of each other, that um, we continued to uh, learn and grow uh, individually and um, as, as a group and a fairly small cohesive group at that point in time. And to a large extent, those values um, um, have remained unchanged, um, even though we might have different titles to those values that we do at the moment um, as apt. But um, the important thing is that uh, the fundamentals to the work that we do, the ethical uh, positions that we take, the choices that we make are, are in line absolutely with the values of um, the work that we do, which is at that time, we, you know, we focused on health. But uh, we know that uh, with health, there are a whole range of social determinants. And the work that we do now, um, even though, you know, we talk about diversifying and, you know, we now work in governance and, you know, we, we're um, focusing on different areas of, um, you know, the development suite of um, activity. But at the end of the day, um, if you don't have health, you know, anything that we do isn't going to be effective. So we call those things the social determinants. So the social determinants of health have really driven uh, the work that we did previously and I think to a large extent still drive what we do now. So APT has grown quite a lot over the past year. Uh, what do you think about 
and, and obviously as, as people as people join uh, culture shifts and, and, and changes and I, I know that there's uh, having spoken to you and a few other people have been here for quite a while you know you want to maintain like the, the culture that you, that you had at the, at the beginning um, how do you see why do you think that the culture that you had at the start is is integral and how do you uh, see that being maintained as as we move forward our culture um as we, um, I guess, when, when, we, we, when we were first established, uh, was a culture that evolved from the, um, the like-minded um, passion and commitment that those few people had. And as more people came on board, um, we were able to, I, I guess it gives you a, a discernment about the sort of people you want to be working with. So we had, you know, the, the luxury of, really picking and choosing the right people to work with us, those that shared our culture, those who were able, you know, had demonstrated, you know, in their um, their personal and professional lives before joining us that, that, you know, that they would be a good cultural fit for us. And I, I guess, you know, that uh, process um, grew and uh, evolved with us. And then we come to a point in time when there is very rapid change. And we know that uh, for many organisations uh, that go through rapid change, um, if the culture isn't right, that um, the, 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 the most likely outcome is that you're not going to succeed. So not only do you have an unhappy workforce, you end up with um, a, um, a business that uh, doesn't... Um, um, succeed certainly in the way that you would had expected to or you have a, a business that actually fails and there's a lot of research around that and so we're at a very um, important time of our growth in that as we get to this point now where we've more than doubled um, it is uh, it behoves every single one of us Who's joined, who's joined this company to understand that they haven't just joined a company, that they have joined a family, a family that shares its values, that looks after each other, that supports each other, a family that provides um, inspirational leadership for its younger people and um, learns from uh, mistakes in a, a non-prejudicial way that we can... There, you know, so we have a, a blame-free environment so that we can learn. We have a, uh, an environment which allows us to exchange ideas freely, um, to acknowledge each other's um, contribution, our skills, our talents, allows us to um, be creative and individual at the same time. And, um, and you know, it's, it's a real honour to be um, given the role of, um, you know, to look after our organisational culture. Um, but it requires um, me to listen and it requires all of us to listen as well as act. And, uh, and I hope um, that people do feel that they can come and talk to me when they feel a little bit um, under, um, you know, under threat, if you like, of... Um, uh, of, uh, it's probably not the right word to use, but you know maybe under, under pressure might be a better word to use. Under pressure uh, to um, 
in the work that they're doing or feeling that they're not um, being heard or their contribution isn't being valued, that they can come and talk about it and we can look at ways in which we might be able to, you know, to provide the support. But everything that we do, every, every way we act and everything that we say is, you know, should be reflective of the culture. And, uh, and sometimes those things are just little things and they could be like, um, you know, like we've started to create these, um, these conversation opportunities, these conversation spaces physically, but also the opportunities, I say, through the yarning circles to, um, to talk about our experiences and, you know, to make contributions to the wider development um, uh, agenda. And um, also... Um, and just going to the, the yarning circles, mm. what is it uh, in particular about the yarning circles? Well, the yarning circles, um, they, they came about as a result of the work that we do with, in our Indigenous communities and understanding the importance of um, um, people's opportunity to freely speak their mind and to share information um, in a way that is absolutely respectful. Uh, and it isn't about you know someone um, talking over someone else or or someone um, thinking that their idea might be better than the other or creating debate. It's about respectfully listening to what everyone has to say and giving every person the opportunity to contribute to the discussion. And um, and I think that um, you know when you've got um, a lot of younger professionals coming in. It is an important way, not only for them to learn, but for them to learn, you know, to learn new knowledge and acquire uh, new insights. But for them to bring a perspective that might not necessarily be able to be brought, because you know, normally you would find that they would sort of sit back and not say anything. But if everyone is given equal opportunity to make a contribution to the conversation, then, then you're hearing every perspective. And I know we've had a lot of um, discussions around the difference with, you know, between millennials and the Gen Ys. And, um, you know, I'm neither. <laughs> I'm a baby boomer. I think there's only, you know, a couple of us in the company that are actual baby boomers. And I just find it really interesting that I seem to connect better with the millennials than I do, you know, than the Gen Ys do with the millennials. Um, but, you know, we have to acknowledge that, you know, um, the millennials are the future. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, the wisdom of people um, who are, you know, in the, um, uh, you know, more mature in their professional lives, um, it, you know, is something that needs to be acknowledged also. So it has to be a good balance about, you know, what it is the millennials want. What are we going to be able to do to allow millennials to, um, you know, make the contribution we know they can, um, you know, from the perspective that is a very different one than what we experienced as we went through our professional growth. So yeah, I think the yarning circles are um, a really good way of um, informally um, creating cohesiveness as well as uh, um, demonstrating respect and uh, also creating a knowledge environment. And is there anything you'd like to say to uh, the people listening, the people of APT, anything in particular? Well, just, uh, yeah, just join the party. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, we, you know, we, we're all very fortunate. And uh, uh, to be part of, um, you know, APT um, at this crucial time in, in, um, 
you know, in world history because, you know, we know that uh, the gap between rich and poor is growing greater and greater. Um, we know that, you know, poverty is the basis for all of the, you know, the inequity and the sadness and the... Um, and, and even, you know, the, the strife, the, the, um, the, the unrest that we see across, across the globe. Um, and uh, we have to close that gap. We absolutely have to close that gap. And, um, you know, it's everyone's responsibility to be part of that. It's, it, absolutely. And uh, just as we, you know, from my perspective, I have a great passion for contributing to closing the gap on disparity and inequity in, you know, in Australia between our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters. But, you know, globally, we've got that same challenge. Yeah, earlier on this morning, we were talking about um, empathy mm. and how it's kind of core uh, mm. to, to what app and well, GTA did and yeah. what app does. Mm. Um, could you just ex expand uh, upon well, what you did say was that it's kind of foundational in how mm. uh, we operate mm. and it was foundational mm. uh, in the beginning mm. and you were tying in empathy to health and I just think everyone um, listening would probably like to hear mm. what I heard earlier on today. Yeah, well, when we talk about empathy, we talk about um, not... Um, not being sympathetic or feeling sorry for people, what we're doing is saying, look, we recognise that life hasn't dealt everyone the same hand and um, there are social injustices that occur. But, and we have, um, we have skills, knowledge and ability um, as a group of professionals to, um, to make a contribution in a way that does uh, require us to be empathetic, um, to understand the... Um, you know, the, the challenges and the issues that people face um, either in the developing world or even in the developed world. And that's why it's important that we recognise that not all the work we do is in developing countries. We actually work in Australia as well. And um, for the same purpose, to the same ends, that, you know, we want to address in inequity and we want to address um, the, the drivers of that inequity, which are often around poverty. And um, the other thing about empathy is that um, without empathy, um, we're not going to make the, the, the right choices or the choices that are going to match our values. That we have to really understand the people we're working with and for. And um, those um, efforts need to be underpinned always uh, by our values. And that is why empathy is an important driver of values as well, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, in your uh, your time working with uh, Apton JGA, you uh, had a lot of opportunities to empathise with uh, the people you're working mm -hmm. with in, through the forms of actually mm -hmm. living uh, with them in mm -hmm. villages, uh, quite remote uh, from what I've heard. Uh, could you want to talk a little bit about some of your experiences? Mm -hmm. um, in PNG or yeah, my experiences actually go way beyond my um, start with uh, with JTA, and um, I've been you know working in development for um, you know several decades now, and um, my um, interest I guess in um, what we could do or my curiosity about what we could do um, to improve the lives of people who. Are, are obviously in, in need um, as a result of, um, you know, choice or circumstance. And, uh, and I, you know, we need to do this in a very non-prejudicial way. The work that we do, we can't afford to judge. 
Um, but I was um, working in Papua New Guinea back in the late 70s and I was living in a small village in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And uh, that required me every day to go out, you know, into the, um, um, into the, into the villages and uh, walk amongst um, the people that we were, um, we were serving and um, really brought home to me again how important it is and I reflect back on empathy, how important it is to sometimes, you know, step into the shoes of those that we're working with and those that we're, um, you know, striving to improve their lives. And I was really, really fortunate. And I don't think that uh, for many people, they don't have those opportunities anymore. Uh, for me, I was able to walk, every day go out um, into the, um, you know, little um, settlements, um, walk through jungle paths, spend days out in the bush, um, live in the huts, um, eat the food and, um, you know, gain a knowledge and understanding beyond anything I could ever have done, you know, sitting back in Australia. So they were very formative years for me in terms of, you know, what I wanted to do for the rest of... And how much time did you spend, you know, in these uh, villages? Uh, four years I lived um, in, in a village. Uh, the little village was called Hoyebia. Um, and you know, it was in a, at a time when um, a very little Western influence had occurred up in the Highlands. So it was such a privilege to you know, just live with people who only knew their culture. They hadn't yet been intruded upon by Western culture or had been very, very limited. So when I was there, people still wore traditional dress. They still lived in their, in their grass huts. They still um, survived on what they could grow and what they could hunt. And uh, I was able to share um, their, their you know, cultural celebrations and in you know, very moving ways. Um, and, uh, I, and I think you know, what that um, was able to do for me as uh, you know, someone who you know, felt that they could um, make a difference was show that um, other things external to that could make a difference for me as well. So they made a difference to me and the difference they made to me uh, or the things that I was able to be more aware of having spent that, um, that time in those villages over those four years was to know that um, I on my own um, could not make a big difference but I working with like-minded people could make big differences. And, um, and I think it's important to, to know that, uh, you know, that, that whilst we have people that we hold up as beacons of um, transformation in the lives of um, communities, that many of them, you know, uh, can't achieve or won't achieve that without the support of lots and lots of people around them. And uh, so that was one of the big lessons I learned that... Uh, uh, you need to be able to have your own network of support, uh, both professional and personal, to make a difference. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your experiences in Africa? Yeah, that, that was a pretty um, unusual time. Um, I say unusual because, you know, sometimes you do things without really understanding why you're doing them. And this was an occasion where I uh, was deeply moved by the plight of the... Um, um, the people who had suffered the suffering through a genocide in uh, in Rwanda, and so I put my hand up to volunteer to go 
uh, to to work over there, particularly as um, there were streams of um, you know hundreds of thousands of people um, across the borders of, of Rwanda, mostly into um, um, the Congo. It was uh, called Zaire at the time. Uh, so I, I hopped on a plane and ended up you know landing in Goma thinking, what the heck have I done? As I look out the window of this very small plane, there were five of us on the plane. Can you just um, place us, uh, where were you in, in Lafayette? What was, the, what was going um, on uh, yeah, with you? Yeah, yes, well, I mean, you know, there's always a personal story behind these things. And I was at a time where I was, in my life, where I was not really clear about, you know, what I was going to do with the rest of it. And, and um, I so wasn't, just, I wasn't so, a young person. Um, so I was, you do have a background in nursing? Yes, right? yes, so yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, I, so I, I started my career as a nurse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've always had those, you know, those skills. And, um, you know, over, the, over my career, I've just built on those and expanded into other areas. But um, so what I was, you know, the, the purpose of my being in there um, in that position was that um, there was a big cholera outbreak as a result of uh, these um, hundreds of thousands of people streaming across the borders uh, into um, um, refugee camps that had been hastily set up as a result of the genocide. The genocide was still occurring, so it was very, very fresh. Um, the, the genocide started in, in um, April, May of 1994, and I arrived um, in um, the beginning of August, 94. Um, I arrived and uh, I uh, was in a company of you know, five other people. There were six of us. And uh, in order to land at Goma, we, we had to, um, you know, dodge a whole lot of uh, goats and um, people that were amassing on the airstrip. So that was the, the first thing. The other thing that I, um, occurred was that there was very low visibility because um, Goma, the town that we landed in, is surrounded by um, a ring of volcanoes. And they're all active, well, most of them are active, so there's always, you know, smoke and... Um, you know, um, ash. The most hospitable yeah, yeah, place. yeah, and and I say that because it, it creates a setting too. So um, we um, we landed and we spent uh, two nights in Goma, and there was a lot of gunfire and um, there was a lot of fighting um, as the Hutu and the and the Tutsi were still still fighting, and uh, we, there were thousands upon thousands of people milling around, making their way to the refugee camps. Um, Care, I was working with Care Australia at the time and uh, the refugee camp that we had charge of was called Katali and it was the, it was the furthest north of the, the camp so we had to drive through several other camps first and we were in a little minibus and as we made our way towards the Katali camp all we could see on the sides of the road were dead bodies piled up, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies. And it was really interesting because, you know, we, we sat there in that bus and no one spoke. We didn't say anything. We didn't say, oh, my goodness, look at that. Oh, isn't this awful? No one said anything. And, you know, we never, ever talked about it. We never talked about the dead bodies ever. And we got to the camp and um, we, um, we, we had a children's, unaccompanied children's camp inside the bigger refugee camp. And my role was to set up the primary health care for the, the bigger camp, but the rest of the care staff were looking after the, um, the unaccompanied kids' camp. And um, it, it, was, it was pretty um, pretty confronting. It was before we got a lot of um, supplies in. So we, there were um, tents set up, but there was no, nothing on the floor. And 
um, there was, as I said, an outbreak of cholera and shigella dysentery and, um, you know, the babies were, um, were just lying, you know, in, swaddled on, the, on, on, you know, the, the lava floor. And the reason I've mentioned the um, uh, volcanoes before is that there's been a lot of eruption from the volcano. So there was, um, you know, a lot of lava rock, um, um, you know, in that environment. And the camps have been set up on these, you know, old lava flows. So there was no There, there was no, you know, piping hot magma nearby. No, no, yeah, no, 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 no. But as you flew over, you could actually see it. No, no, no. Um, no, it was old. old it was old. It okay. was old lava rock. And, and so there was nothing. You, so, you know, um, so you couldn't dig latrines, for instance, and you couldn't dig graves or anything. So, um, you know, it all became very difficult. But uh, I think, the, you know, what struck me most was, uh, again, that uh, the resilience of the human spirit is just, just unbelievable. The people we worked with had just gone through like a nightmare of um, a proportion and magnitude that we would never, ever, ever in our lives here in Australia understand. And yet they, they were still setting up their, um, their communities. They, you know, we still knew who the, who the leaders were. We, you know, we, had, we set up our um, uh, first aid posts. Uh, and, you know, in amongst all that, there were traders and uh, there were... Um, you know, there were church services and um, there were, um, you know, activities set up for the kids. All done, you know, these were all initiated, you know, by the people who were living in those camps. But there was also, you know, a lot of incredible sadness and, and heartache and heartbreak. And um, on top of that, at that time, sub-Saharan Africa was um, overwhelmed with the HIV AIDS epidemic. So whilst a lot of people were dying as a result of the genocide, dying as a result of the cholera, they were also dying as a result of AIDS. And so that was, a, you know, another uh, layer of complexity to the, the health issues that we were facing, uh, let alone the social issues, um, you know, of, of recreating um, communities inside these, you know, very difficult um, situations of a refugee camp. So, I mean, there's a lot of stories to tell there, but um, we, we won't, I won't go into those at this point in time. I think um, I was just chatting to, I think, Patricia this morning, mm. and uh, she said something along the lines of you being in a car in Africa, being chased by men with guns towards the, the airport, reminiscent of a James yeah. Bond film. Or <laughs> it was, yeah, I wish it was a James Bond <laughs> film. Yeah. Um, what had happened was that... Um, as the, um, as the refugee camps started to become more organised, there were food supplies coming in, um, you know, through um, um, donors like Oxfam. And uh, so on a regular basis, I think it was about every second day, we'd get a big food truck come through and we'd distribute that food, which was usually um, you know, like a litre of um, oil and, you know, a bag of maize. Um, and so the you know the women and the children would come to the um, the food truck to get the supplies for their family. Um, the Hutu that had um, you know created that the, the terrible um, events of um, you know uh, the genocide in Rwanda. Some of them had escaped into the camps and had started to bully uh, the women and steal the food from them at the time of the food distribution. So what we did um, in the camp was to identify um, what people who were Boy Scouts, 
because you might know Baden Powell, who was the leader of the Boy Scout movement, it started in Africa. And um, so they, they were like bona fide scouts, but they were a bit older than the Boy Scouts you get here in Australia. So the scouts would then protect the women and the children, the vulnerables, uh, from the Hutu who were stealing the food from them. And um, they set up their own um, camp. Uh, sorry, not their camp. They set up their own tents and they had like a, the fleur-de-lis. You, were you ever a Boy Scout? Do you know no, the Boy no. Scout movement? They have a fleur-de-lis. That's their emblem. So they, they had a... Um, Is it the same Boy Scouts as yeah, the Yeah, exactly the same Boy Scouts. Yeah, same yeah, yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, same stuff. And they had a fleur-de-lis flag flying in the, in the middle of the camp and they, that's where they lived and that's where they gathered and it, they acted as you know, the protectors of the vulnerables. And we came into the camp. We never lived on the campsite. We lived in a little Zaewa village outside of the camp. <coughs> and um, we would travel in each day. I think it was probably around, I don't know, about seven kilometres or something. Um, anyway, we came into the camp one day and um, the... the um, the Boy Scouts, uh, they had been, some of them had been slaughtered overnight um, and their bodies had, uh, had been placed at the, you know, around the flagpole. And then there was a list of names you know, put onto the flagpole, uh, which were our names, you know, and um, saying that you know, we were going to be next. Because what we were doing, what they could see, we were preventing them from accessing um, you know, the food, and we, we had, you know, put the scouts in charge of the protection, so they killed the, um, the Boy Scouts. I'm not sure, my memory isn't 100%, but I think there were about 13 um, Boy Scouts killed. Uh, so then we had to evacuate from the camp because our names were on the list. And so we evacuated the camp on the back of... Um, the, we had a, a German um, ambulance, we had... Um, a truck that was an empty truck that was used for carrying so the food. Did you you saw your names there, and then did you quickly realise, okay, we need to get out of here? Yeah, well, we were told the names were mm -hmm. there because they weren't written in English; they were written in French, um, and we just, we had word that the um, uh, that our names were on the list. So I never actually saw a list with our names, but we were told. But we we had to evacuate, and uh, so we went back to the um, Zayewa village uh, and then headed north up towards um, Uganda. And we were actually, and we were chased. Uh, so Hutu militia were chasing us. They had um, a couple of pickup trucks and they had rocket launchers and, um, and um, AK-47s. And they were chasing us. Because the other thing is that we had money because we were paying people you know, to do work in the camp. So we had money. And uh, I had ten thousand US dollars that I had. Oh, I was looking after. I was putting into this. Yeah, your cash. Yeah, because there were no banks or anything. So we were, be we were being chased. So we were chased all through, um, you know, the uh, the border uh, of Goma and Rwanda. Then up, you know, we got to no man's land in um, in Uganda, and we couldn't get through because we didn't have visas or anything. So we had a, a satellite phone, so we were able to contact our people in Nairobi, who then contacted um, the Department of Foreign Affairs here in Australia. And uh, Gareth Evans was the Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time. And he negotiated with his counterpart in um, Uganda to allow us through. So we got through the border, but it was a pretty awful, uh, I think it was about... 15 hours we were stranded there waiting for these the militia to arrive. Wow. 
Yeah, so and then we, so we, sat, we were in Uganda, then we travelled back into Rwanda and we went down to Kigali. Uh, and then because we'd been working in the camps and had been um, um, somewhat tainted, if you like, you know, with, with the work that we'd been doing, we were told that we needed to leave Kigali as well. So I remember we went to, um, um, well, we, we went to the house that we had in Kigali, that Kia had in Kigali. And then we were there for, I think, two nights and then we had to leave, we were told we had to leave. So we were taken to the airport and uh, the airport was really where, where everything started because, I mean, the, the, the civil war started when um, the president of Rwanda and the president of Burundi were, um, were shot out of the sky and their plane crashed as a result of, you know, a, a rocket launcher exploding and crashing their plane. And there was an all-out fight that had occurred at the air, airport and when we got there, the airport was totally deserted and you could just see the remnants of where all the rockets had, um, had exploded and where gunfire, etc. So, But there was a big UN plane, a big Russian Antonov white plane, massive white bird sitting there and had its little back down, you know, as you walk up. So we um, drove across and we um, piled into the plane thinking, oh God, please get us out of here, please, please, please. And there were Russian um, um, pilots, so we couldn't understand them. They couldn't understand us. And we were just sitting there. And we sat there for like several hours thinking, why isn't this plane going? We're like, so you're, you're in the plane. Anyway, we're sitting in the plane. And it was, it was um, a, a transport plane, so they weren't sit, you know, we're just sort of like um, deck chairs sort of thing along the sides of the, in the fuselage. So it wasn't like a, you know, a passenger plane. And there were some passenger seats that right at the very front of the plane, just behind the cabin. We thought, well, why can't we go and sit up there? Well, we, we went to walk up there and we got pushed back, you know, made to sit in these other baggy um, canvas seats. And then after a while, we, uh, we saw two jeeps coming across, speeding across the tarmac, and they were flying the uh, Rwandan flag. And the new president of uh, Rwanda walked on board and he, and he and his entourage took the front seats, the only proper passenger seats, and we were told to just not to say a word because we'd actually been, you know, on the other side working. And um, so we just had to sit very quietly and I thought, I don't want to be on this plane. And it was a terrible flight. And um, all I could think of was this is, uh, this is how this whole thing started with, you know, the president flying across, you know, Rwanda and his plane being shot out of the sky. And I thought, well, is it going to happen again? <laughs> and we landed. We landed in Kenya um, and um, we, were, um, we were at Nairobi. And uh, so we had to wait for him to, um, you know, disembark. And they rolled out the red carpet and they... Um, parked the plane right on the other side of the air, airstrip, so nowhere they, near the they terminals. They had a red carpet, yeah. yeah they in had the, a red in the midst of chaos, they still had a red carpet to oh, lay yeah, out. Yeah, 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 of course. And so they all came out and there was, um, you know, cars waiting to take them across because they were going for peace talks. That's what it was all about. And um, so we all started to walk out, you know, down the front steps and we were pushed back. So they had to lower the back of the plane down. So we walked out the back side of the plane. So then we walked over and started to throw it because we only had our backpacks. We throw our backpacks in the back of this pickup truck that was sitting there. And then we, we had to take them out. We were told to take them out again. And we had to walk across the whole entire, uh, you know, um, um, breadth of the airstrip to get across to the terminals. Yeah, because we weren't to be anywhere near the president and his people. 
but then we went back in again. But anyway, look, there's heaps of other stories, but that's, that was that story, yeah. Uh, I think we'll just change speed. Um, when we met uh, about a month ago uh, and I was looking for interesting stories, uh, you know, just tantalising stories uh, for the teaser for the podcast, you mentioned that um, you, you described yourself as a, a hippie back in the day. Um, do you want to talk about... Uh, that time of your life? Yeah, sure. It was an interesting time. I um, <clears throat> just yeah, yeah, just yeah. Um, I um, I grew up in 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 the sixties, and um, I started my nursing training in the late sixties, uh, and at a time when um, you know nurses were um, uh, we started their careers quite young. So I was uh, I was only seventeen when I started nursing. So by the time I'd finished my you know my qualification. Um, I was I was still quite young and was right in the midst of the hippie area, and um, and uh, where were you living at the time? At, at the time, I had been um, living in a um, a, a small um, place that we had hand built um, up in the mountains just outside of Boona. Sorry, just to, um, for some context, where are you from originally? I was from Victoria. From Victoria. Victoria. So okay. I was up here in Queensland. And uh, so this was in the, um, so it was after I'd come back from uh, the four years in Papua New Guinea. So I would have been in my mid-twenties. And um, so we'd come back and we'd hand-built a house. So we found this plot of land on top of a mountain. I mean, literally, um, Mount French, if anyone's listening and knows um, this district, which is the Fassifern Valley, which is just on the other, the western side of Ipswich, between Ipswich and Warwick, and they call it the Valleys of the Scenic Rims, and there's quite a number of mountains there. And uh, so we, we found a plot of land up, uh, it was in a national park, and you know, it was just quite um, unusual to have land that you could buy in the national park. It was actually surrounded by national parks, so it was just 10 acres of land. And um, so we bought the 10 acres and uh, we moved onto it, and we just you know, had an old caravan. And when you say we... Uh... Uh, my husband, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and I had two children at the time as well, so I had my children very young, um, which has allowed me to sort of do so much because, you know, um, I, I got to a time in my life when most people are still rearing their children but and you know, my kids had, um, you, know, you know, fled the nest. Anyway, so we were up on this mountain and we had a small caravan and there was no water, uh, there was no electricity, uh, there was just lots of uh, timber and rocks and us in our little caravan. So we cleared the land. We did everything by hand. We cleared the land uh, and we built the house. Um, we felled trees and we collected rocks and stone pitched the house. And there was no Google back then. You there was no Google. You Google how to build a house. No, 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 no. It, the house still stands. So if anyone's up there, they got the top of Mount French, they will see this house. And they will see that the rock, uh, you know, the, there's a rock wall and it's got a nice little bend in it, which is because I lost a bit of line of sight when I was <laughs> building it. So we hand built the house and um, I was working at the local hospital and as a, uh, as a nurse and a midwife. And it was at a time when um, there was a, a sort of a, like a reawakening through, because we're talking about the 70s now, where there's a reawakening of um, um, issues around... Um, um, well, I guess you'd call it back then the feminist movement, 
but it was about you know equality and why men tend to um, want to control women's lives and their bodies when they you know their reproductive health and their reproductive um, ages. So we we thought yeah you know we don't need male doctors you know telling us how to you know do something that is really um, a natural function and has been for many thousands and thousands, well, for millennia, well, since Adam and Eve, you know. Uh, so there was this movement to take charge of childbirth um, in a natural way. But we know now, and I've learned a lot from that, because I know that, you know, there are a lot of um, unnecessary um, deaths and a lot of unnecessary damage done uh, to women and children, you know, when they're not supervised properly, you know, with um, their birthing experience. But back in that day, well, I was full of, um, you know, righteous indignation that, you know, men would want to interfere with that process. So um, I got involved in a movement called Spiritual Midwifery. And uh, that uh, meant that everything was done naturally. And uh, not only that, that you were surrounded with lots of love and um, lots of um, um, meditation and lots of other, you know, you know natural chemicals, you know, <laughs> without putting too fine a point on it. Um, so um, the fact was that, you know, we ha uh, you know I had, uh, you know, midwifery skills. And so th this, you know, home birthing or a spirit, uh, through spiritual midwifery was, was very... And, and when you say spiritual, do you... Uh, In terms of it being meditative mm -hmm. and, so you know, no centering. no religion? Uh, no, 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 it wasn't religious. Uh, well, it wasn't religious in the sense of... Um, you following know, some book. It yeah, just... yeah, it wasn't like, you know, it was... You know, it's, it wasn't anything that was um, um, dominated by, you know, a Christian um, ideology or a Muslim ideology or a Buddhist ideology. It was more about, you know, the, the spirituality of self and being in touch with nature. And, you know, and I look back and I think I can't believe and believe. I'm even talking about it, my God. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so... You seem it, to be it, very, you know, happy talking about it. Yeah. It was, it was, I know I'm looking, I'm laughing because it was so, so foolish <laughs> in many ways. I mean, we never had any um, untoward um, outcomes. We, we had very safe deliveries. Um, and I guess I was astute enough to realise that if there was a, um, a complication that you would immediately, um, you know, seek the assistance that, you know, the appropriate assistance. But um, it, it, was, it was really um, empowering for women to have total control over the delivery experience. So they didn't have to lie in a hospital bed with their legs in stirrups and, you know, surrounded by, you know, men with masks and gowns and rubber gloves. And it was, you know, you could just be, you know, in your own clothes, in your own bed, you know, light your candles, have people around you singing. Um, and, um, you know, have your partner there supporting you, even assisting with the delivery itself. So back then, that was really quite, um, uh, quite an outrageous, um, you know, um, thing to be doing. Uh, but as I became a little bit more um, responsible, if you like, and I was appointed as a, um, you know, the director of nursing for a, a, a hospital, and um, that included looking after the maternity section. And uh, so we realised, and we, you know, there was a lot of evidence, a lot of research that provided evidence to say that 
you know, you didn't need people to wear gloves and gowns and, you know, rubber gloves and what have you to safety deliver babies or not allow the husband or the partner with the woman while she's having a baby. Um, and you didn't have to actually have people in hospital beds to have babies. And so we were able to come to a, um, a really good compromise where we set up a birthing unit, which was much more relaxed. And we had bean bags and we had baths so people could sit in baths during their labour. And, you know, the your husband or the and partner could be there. Was this at your house? This was at the hospital. Uh, no, this was the hospital. Okay. Yeah, this was post, this, you know, the going out into the you know, hippie compounds <laughs> and looking after the, the mums, yeah. So it was an interesting time, yeah. So how would you compare life back then to life now, um, just from, from a very broad perspective, looking at, um, you know, technologies and the way of life, the way people talk to each other? What are the highlights from back then? What are the, uh, you know, the positive um, memories you have and the negatives and just, you know, compare and contrast? Um, oh, I, th I think, you know... People say, oh, if, if I had my time over, I wouldn't change anything. If I had my time over, I'd change a lot of things. I did a lot of silly things, a lot of stupid things. And I learnt lots of really valuable lessons along the way. And I think that's um, if there's anything that I've learned is that um, y if you're going to experience life, you have to be prepared to learn the lessons of life and not um, not assume that you know you know everything and I you know I'm, I'm did some silly I look back and there's things that I'm really ashamed of that I did because I thought I knew everything I thought I was the one who you know had sole you know, possession of a particular you know knowledge um, or um, experience and and you know I, I wasn't and um, so there are things that I would do very differently um, I I love the opportunity to um, explore um, my, um, you know, the, the, and test the boundaries of um, my, both my professional and personal life. Uh, that, that, was, that was fantastic. Um, I love the fact that, um, you know, I wasn't constrained by rules and regulations, uh, although they existed, and I certainly didn't cross the line. But I felt that I had the opportunity to, um, um, you know, to put, as I said, to push those boundaries a bit. Um, I loved the opportunity to be given the freedoms that I had. And um, I was fortunate that I had some incredible mentors during my early years. And I mean, another lesson is that, you know, mentors aren't just for new emerging professionals. Um, mentor, you, you, uh, mentors are, are just as applicable you know, right through your career and as I'm you know, sort of at the almost terminal end of my career and um, I can say that even now I look to people to inspire and um, people to um, mentor and guide me even now and that you know, learning never stops. Um, the importance uh, around that I think for me is that I now have a whole lot of skills and experiences, simply by the fact that I'm still here after all this time. But um, you know, and I'm just really wanting to share those. And sometimes it is just about storytelling, so people don't feel so silly about some of the decisions that they've made that someone like myself has made even sillier, and more, um, in some cases, more profound mistakes 
So we all make mistakes, but we need to, you know, it's an old adage, but a true one. If we don't learn from our, our mistakes, then, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's not a lot of, um, we can look to into the future to build ourselves. So I, th I think making mistakes is part of building yourself, mm -hmm. building your careers and your professional knowledge. So to for those listening, uh, if there's one principle or are there a few principles that you've learnt uh, in life or in international development in particular that uh, help that have helped guide you over the years or that when you look back on they uh, tend to stand out uh, the thing I guess the most important thing is um, there are two things one is um, you have to be brave enough to set up out of your comfort zone so it really is. You've got it. Sometimes you've just got to step out in faith. That you've definitely done that. Yeah. <laughs> Go. Oh dear God, I don't know what I'm doing, but um, here I am, and I'm doing it. And so many times I've done that. I thought, what have I done? Why did I make that decision? But you need to do it because if you don't push yourself, you're not going to achieve your full potential. I'm not sure that even now after, you know, all these decades that I've reached my full potential, I still think there's a lot that I can contribute, a lot more that I can learn. The other important thing is, as I mentioned um, when we talked before this interview, was around curiosity. You have to be curious. You have to poke your nose in, sometimes where it's not wanted, but you need to find out, you know, you have to... You know, you've, you've got to seek, you've got to explore, because by doing that, um, you open up so much um, that would otherwise be closed to you. So, you know, curiosity and, um, and, and courage, I think, are, are really important things uh, to, uh, um, that, that have certainly um, allowed me to do uh, the things that I just never would have thought um, when I started my career that I'd be able to do. But when I say courage, I mean, sometimes, you know, you just got to do it and you don't think about it being, oh, gosh, I'm going, this is going to be a brave thing for me to do. You don't know till after. You look back and you go, you know, it was probably stupidity more than courage. <laughs> but you've still got to take the chance. You've got to take the chance, yeah. And is there anything you'd like to say to uh, people listening, people of APT, anything in particular? Just uh, yeah, just join the party. <laughs> it's a great. We, you know, we, we're all very fortunate, and uh, uh, to be part of um, you know apt um, at this crucial time in in um, you know in world history because you know we know that uh, the gap between rich and poor is growing greater and greater. Um, we know that you know poverty is the basis for all of the you know the inequity and the sadness. And the um, and, and even you know the the strife the the, um, the the unrest that we see across across the globe, um, and uh, we have to close that gap. We absolutely have to close that gap. And um, you know it's everyone's responsibility to be part of that. It's it, absolutely. And uh, just as we you know from my perspective, I have a great passion for contributing to closing the gap on disparity and inequity in, you know, in Australia between our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters. But, you know, globally we've got that same challenge. All right, well, thank you very much. Yeah.
Well, thank you again to Karen for sharing some of her incredible stories and for the words of wisdom. I hope those of you listening enjoyed our discussion as much as I did. Until next time, have a lovely day.